think about organized crime, it's not intuitive that Africa would be a focus. But from the illegal wildlife trade to human smuggling and oil theft to blood diamonds, piracy and drug smuggling, Africa is increasingly becoming webbed into the global illicit economy. In this new podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, we not only examine the flows of illicit commodities, but also look at the enabling environment that has made Africa vulnerable to the growth of organized crime. With more than 150 network members and contacts across the continent, this podcast will be an unparalleled look at the drivers of Africa's illicit economy. What's inside a package is only known to its owner, a Ugandan proverb. But when it comes to East and Southern Africa, regulating ownership of the region's most lucrative resources is not always easy. These regulations come with a host of unintended consequences, opening new doors for those in the illicit economy. In Northern Uganda, the tension between demand for charcoal and bans on production has given rise to powerful dealers who strike predatory agreements with local communities. In South Africa, where wine shipments are fast-tracked for export, traffickers masquerade drugs as bottles, hijacking the reputation of reputable vineyards. Off the coast of these Seychelles, the evolution of a small wooden boat known locally as a dhow reveals complexities in prosecuting international maritime crime. You're listening to the second episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy, exploring organized crime on the African continent with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. The GI has a unique position to bring you expert analysis on the illicit economy in Africa. And that's why we'll be bringing you new episodes twice a month. For each episode, we'll focus on a specific region of the continent covered by the GI's observatories. And this week, we're looking at East and Southern Africa. I'm your host, Lindim Tongana. Charcoal is a vital energy source for over 30% of Uganda's population. A 2019 ban on charcoal production in Kenya has given way to a network of smugglers illegally exporting Ugandan charcoal at a premium to buyers across the porous border. Rapid population growth and urbanization are also driving demand for the resource within the nation, complicating efforts at banning its production. International and national governments have implemented a cocktail of methods to stymie the charcoal trade, but these bans have given way to unforeseen complications, such as an increase in charcoal prices and the growth of illicit industries in charcoal-producing regions. But how does this illicit market work? How are those involved adapting to the rise of community and state resistance to their trade? And what is civil society doing to protect their forests? Arthur Awar is the Director of Research and Operations at the Center for Africa Research, Northern Uganda, and a member of the civil society group, Our Trees, We Need Answers. We 
shouldn't forget the history of the political violence we had in this region. That is important to give us the context in which this is taking place. People were brought in internally displaced people's camps for quite a while and they were not allowed to access their lands. As they returned, we saw a lot of things happening. Private investors came to carry on large-scale commercial farming and therefore they needed to clear some trees. This enabled them to undertake devastation of the environment to that level in which they did. Arthur, despite bans on the charcoal trade, the industry is still alive in northern Uganda. What state actors are involved in this illicit charcoal trade value chain? What's their role in keeping the industry afloat? The state actors who have been involved are the military elite and sometimes the police working together with some of these economic elites. So as that happens, they're able to deploy even their powers, sometimes making phone calls to different people who are manning checkpoints, the ones, the law enforcers, who are meant to ensure that this large-scale charcoal production is being scaled down. So they're going to make phone calls to these police officers, to the district officials, who sometimes even issue permits saying, let this truck be cleared to be able to move past this checkpoint. The other side is using state coercion and land grabs. The state has been able to retrace its way back, grabbing some public lands, what they call state farms, claiming them and grabbing these lands, and you find them taking advantage and clearing whatever is there. That coercion has also pushed the local people into a state of panic, a state of panic in the sense that they fear that this land is going to be taken away, and therefore to maximize the benefits from it, they have to cut down the trees so that they can get benefits before the state and be able to grab this land. Arthur, in your work with the Center for Africa Research and Our Trees We Need Answers, you've named and shamed a number of those involved in Gulu District's illicit charcoal industry. What has been the result of these efforts? Our naming and shaming has been successful. We've named at least three chairpersons in the sub-counties who were involved in this nefarious trade. We have also been able to name one official in Gulu, who I may not mention now, We took them on. We've been having engagements with the media because our composition is sort of like our strength. We have an inbuilt media strategy that enables us to be able to connect our intervention with the media. And so throughout the entire actually sub-region with eight districts, we've been able to name, including military officers, who sometimes hold the police at ransom. We have also, in a sense, put the duty bearers like the 4th Division commander and the other public officials to account for some of these things that are happening. So I think we've been highly successful. In February this year, the Gulu District Vice Chair, Simon Peter Ola, claimed that local authorities had eliminated about 95% of the charcoal trade in the district. What's your view on this assessment of government action? Simon Ola comes from the local government side things. They are responsible for issuing movement permits. The district is responsible for issuing permits to these charcoal dealers. So what has happened, and when he quotes those figures, we have only seen the district formalizing this illegal trade. So when the district issues out the permit, then in a sense, the trade becomes formalized. This is what they've done. We've not seen the numbers going down. But in our opinion, we've made it unfashionable for them to be able to smuggle or take these trucks in broad daylight. Authorities from Gulu District have also claimed they collected more than 10 million Ugandan shillings from charcoal fines. What happens to this money? If you look at the budgets of these different districts where charcoal production is taking place, 
their local revenues have actually risen. Now, that local revenue gives them a lot of leeway to be able to conduct their meetings and foot their, the bills of some of these politicians at that level. So we think if Nwaya says they have actually realized a lot of local revenue from this spread, I think that, in a sense, incentivizes them to continue to issue charcoal permits and licenses. And that has a net effect on the environment. It has a net effect on the level of trees that are being cut across the region. Did the ban on charcoal production do much to reduce the number of trees being cut down and the degradation to the environment? That ban had minimal effect. The enforcement was not clear. The president did not come out clearly to say how this ban was to be enforced. Because when we tried to follow up on what was happening and arising from the ban, the police would say, how do I enforce a ban when the district officials have issued out a license? Secondly, the military also had set up roadblocks at the river at Karuma, in which these logs would not be allowed to be taken down south. But again, the districts were issuing some of these permits, which became problematic. Now, what about the Sustainable Charcoal Production Marketing Bill? You've worked closely with politicians and community actors to move this bill forward. What are the details of the bill and what are community actors asking for? The spirit of the bill is to transform that into an actual charcoal industry, meaning we have to overturn that exploitative charcoal value chain in order to benefit our local population. We want the actual charcoal industry, an industry that is run by the local people, an industry that is managed sustainably, an industry that engenders even charcoal farming because charcoal is lucrative. So what this bill is actually saying is we can work with the private sector in form of PPP arrangements, public-private partnerships to undertake charcoal production. We can also come up with charcoal cooperatives and be able to undertake production of charcoal in a manner that is sustainable as opposed to the charcoal industry in Acholi. We are also addressing the issues of penalties and fines and then being able to undertake an assessment of which kind of trees have which kind of values, which kind of trees have which cultural values, which kind of trees have which economic values. That is all embedded in this bill. So I think this bill is a game changer. It's going to change a lot of things that are happening. This bill is coming up in good faith. And if it is adopted by the eight actually districts, it is something that is going to cause huge change. That was Arthur Owar, the Director of Research and Operations at the Center for Africa Research in Northern Uganda and a member of the civil society group, Our Trees, We Need Answers. On a typical day at the Esterhope Wine Estate in the Western Cape, South Africa, workers busy themselves packing boxes of wine bottles for export. But one peculiar afternoon in 2017 would go down in history. While preparing a Belgian-bound pallet of wine, workers noticed that one pallet was poorly packed. Worried this would cause wine bottles to break, they diligently reopened each box, revealing approximately 963 kilograms of heroin, one of South Africa's greatest heroin discoveries. Rukshana Parker is an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime with the South and East Africa Organized Crime Observatory. She's been looking at how drug smugglers in South Africa have co-opted the country's growing wine export industry for illicit trade. Some of the primary markets for South African wine, which are European countries such as the UK, Netherlands and Germany, 
also happen to be key markets for drugs that are moved through South Africa. And given that there are several methods for smuggling illicit items through wine consignments, the South African wine export industry becomes an appealing target for drug traffickers. Rukshana, what are examples of some of the most creative ways that wine is used to smuggle contraband? So there have been instances where drug traffickers with access to scientific resources would actually dissolve the drugs in wine itself. Usually then once the wine bottles reach the destination, you'd have a scientist or a technician then extract the drug from the alcohol and then reproduce it in powdered or tablet form. And this method has become very popular because standard scanners and ports and borders cannot detect drugs that are dissolved in alcohol. Usual MRI imaging machines that are used at hospitals can detect them. But then again, not all ports and borders have access to this type of equipment. Another example would be the wine box cartons. So they have occasionally been used to smuggle wildlife products. Because those wine box cartons have a thin internal layer of lead foil, which interferes with scanning equipment. And that basically creates a bounce back of the images, which makes it hard to determine the exact contents of the cartons. But as time has progressed, scanning equipment has advanced. And this method has become less popular. So instead, now we see small quantities of wildlife products and drugs being placed into the wine corks. Are wine farm owners or exporters complicit in this activity? One cannot unequivocally say yes or no. At this moment, there's simply not enough evidence to answer that. But there are cases where corrupt officials at the point of departure will conceal drugs in containers after it has been scanned. Then another corrupt official at the point of arrival will extract the drugs before the container is sent for inspection. And in many of these cases, the farm owners or the exporters are not aware that they are actually being used to transport drugs. Is the smuggling of illicit goods via legitimate exports unique to South Africa? No, This method of hijacking legitimate trading opportunities and exports to smuggle illicit goods is definitely not unique to South Africa. For example, in Kenya, exports must be scanned before departure. But because tea is the country's main export, it's fast-tracked and exempted from scanning. So instead, you just have a customs official present when the tea is being loaded onto the containers. And this provides a window of opportunity for smugglers to bribe officials to place other illicit items in the containers. Not too long ago, three tons of ivory was found in Thailand in a container that was marked as tea leaves. And then certain batteries have also been illegally exported from Kenya to Southeast Asia in containers labeled as carrying tea leaves. We've seen a number of significant seizures in South Africa over the past few years. Is this indicative of successful policing and technological advancements? Or do you think there are still significant gaps in detection methods? There have definitely been significant seizures in the past years, which we can attribute to good customs and policing detection methods. But I think there'll always be room for improvement. As time passes, we see that criminal actors become more advanced in their smuggling techniques. And so policing needs to keep up with that. 
if we look at the Erster-Wilb case, the drug seizure was made completely by chance. If one of the farm workers hadn't noticed that one of the wine pallets was queued and asked whether it should be repacked, I'm not sure we would be speaking about this case today. This, I think, shows that criminals will always be innovative in smuggling and that police will always need to keep up with this. What do these successes in policing and law enforcement reveal about the power dynamics in the transnational drug trade? Prior to recent cases such as the Erstewerb case, the centrality of South Africa in the heroin shipping route from Afghanistan to Africa and then to markets in Europe went largely unnoticed. These cases, particularly the Erstewerb cases, have now highlighted the importance that South Africa plays in the drug trade route. The dynamics have changed completely. South Africa is no longer a minor player between these global heroin routes. What's your assessment of the link between South Africa's role as a transit point for drugs and local consumption? South Africa definitely plays a role in the transit of drugs, but it has also become increasingly clear that it does not just end there. So if we take heroin, for example, not all heroin is in transit along the eastern southern African route. The region has a much larger heroin consumer market than is commonly acknowledged. In South Africa in particular, the consumer market for heroin is large and growing. And this phenomenon is being driven by organized local and international networks. South Africa, in fact, stands out as a major destination for much of the heroin that enters the region, both as an end destination for local sale and consumption and for onward shipping to Europe. And a 2017 World Drug Report actually confirmed that more than 75,000 people in South Africa inject themselves with heroin. And the number of people in South Africa who smoke heroin is even greater. Rukshana, let's turn back to the Easterhoop case. What are court proceedings revealing about the people who were involved in this attempted smuggling? It's very unfortunate that not everyone involved in this case is being prosecuted. In the grander scheme of things, the accused in this case is what we would call small fish. So the masterminds behind this international drug trafficking ring remains at large. None of the witnesses have actually been able to shed light on who are the masterminds behind this. And the accused is simply saying that he knows absolutely nothing and that he was used. He was just asked to do a delivery and that's all he knows. Are there high rates of prosecution when it comes to these types of crimes? Unfortunately, in South Africa, we don't always see a correlation between the amount of arrests and sentencing. And there's various reasons for this. Criminal courts are experiencing a massive backlog. The prosecution has to build a strong case against the alleged drug dealer. Sometimes building up the solid case takes time. There's also many people involved. So you have your investigating officers, forensics, etc. And then most importantly, your witnesses who are sometimes too terrified to come forward and testify. If you look at the Erstewerp case, the incident occurred in 2017. We are now in 2020 and there still hasn't been any sentencing. And what else stood out to you about the Esterhope case? The entire case is very interesting because it's one of the largest heroin seizures in the country. But at the same time, 
I was quite taken aback that there was little, very little media presence and coverage on this case. I recall that apart from myself and the accused's father, there weren't any other members of the public in court. Rukshana Parker is an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime with the South and East Africa Organized Crime Observatory. In April 2016, the Dao Payam Al-Mansur set off from the Konarak port of Iran. As it traveled past the northernmost islands of the Seychelles archipelago, it was intercepted by the Seychelles Coast Guard and Anti-Narcotics Bureau. Upon investigation, on board the seemingly innocent vessel, authorities discovered 100 kilograms of heroin and almost a kilogram of opium. The individuals brought to trial in prosecution of the ensuing case were Captain Imam Bakhsh Tarani and Hatam Motashimina, the vessel owner's son. They claimed that Motashimina's father placed the drugs on the Dao without their knowledge. In the initial trial, it was alleged the vessel was intercepted within Seychelles territorial waters, giving Seychelles authorities jurisdiction to prosecute the two mariners for drug trafficking. The pair were given life imprisonment in Seychelles on these grounds. Their sentences were later overturned. The defense argued it was not proven that the Payam al-Mansur was intercepted in the Seychelles territorial waters. What ensued was an ongoing battle of jurisdiction and new knowledge of the role that DAOs play in the illicit trade. Julia Staniard is an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. She joins us to discuss the development of the DAO as a vehicle for the illicit economy. DAOs have actually been involved in trade in the in the Indian Ocean region for absolutely centuries. And originally they were kind of wooden sailing vessels that would be very dependent on the monsoon winds. But in recent years they've become motorized, they're significantly larger and they can make very long journeys. So it means that they're both small vessels that are flying under the radars, but they're also very kind of durable and able to travel far. Julia, in the case of the Payam al-Mansur, the Dao was found to be carrying a significant amount of heroin, nearly 100 kilograms. Where is this heroin coming from and how is it getting to the East African coastline? In terms of origin, the uh, um, route will set off from what's known as the Makran coast, which is the borderline coastline of Iran and, and Pakistan. The heroin itself is produced in Afghanistan, it grows there and then is trafficked down to the coastline before setting off on the maritime routes. Interestingly, the route seems to travel from the Makran coast down to the East African coastline. What happens when Dows reach the East African coastline? So it seems that once getting to the East African coastline states, it's either bought inland and there is a growing consumption market for, for heroin within East Africa. But for the Indian Ocean island states, it seems that the traffic is once more outwards and then is aimed for consumer markets in, for example, Mauritius and the Seychelles, both of which have incredibly high rates of heroin use. The Seychelles has got one of, if not the highest rate of heroin use in the world. And that's posed a big problem for the authorities there and for the health services as well, actually. And it's having a bigger impact on their economy. But it seems DAOs aren't just involved in heroin trafficking. There's a international kind of maritime force which is operating in the region called CTF-150. It's the Combined Maritime Task Force 150, which is made up of the navies of a coalition of states. They are involved in also interdicting arms trafficking to Yemen, to Somalia. And DAOs have also been involved in transporting those shipments as well. 
How integral is the combined maritime task force to policing and patrolling the waters where these dows sail? The international coalition through CTF 150 is very crucial to law enforcement in this this region. But it's also important to note that them not being a national force and not operating on a national territory, that if they intercept any illegal shipments of drugs or so on, they don't have the jurisdiction or the authority to prosecute those cases in a court of law. So if they intercept a vessel carrying drugs, they are able to confiscate them and to destroy them. But there isn't actually the legal follow-up and prosecutions that might happen, for example, in this case in the Seychelles. That's one of the reasons why this case was quite rare. What's your prediction of how things are going to shape up in the future? Do you think the East African coast and Indian Ocean Islands will continue to become more important transit points for Afghan drugs and other illicit goods? This is not necessarily an, an, a new issue. And, you know, the centrality of those islands, it's very difficult to know or to understand exactly how the trafficking routes are implicating the islands because they have very large consumption rates. But other states on the East African continental coast seem to be more the transit points for going on to other regions of the globe. So it's difficult to say how the islands will be implicated in the future. There's certain people we've been speaking to who seem to cite that they, they could become more transit points if dynamics were to, were to change somewhat, but it's basically yeah, it's a historical issue as well as one for the future. That was Julia Staniard, an analyst at the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Africa and the Global Illicit Economy. A big thank you to our guests, Julia Staniard, Arthur O'War and Rukshana Parker. Next week, we'll be focusing on the illicit economy in North Africa and the Sahel. If you want to check out more content on illicit economies in Africa, such as a triangle of vulnerability, changing patterns of illicit trafficking off the Swahili coast, or our latest risk bulletin, head over to our website, www www.globalinitiative.net There are plenty of publications to get your teeth into. You can also find last week's podcast on human smuggling, drug trafficking and COVID-19 in North Africa and the Sahel, along with other podcasts. You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Until then, this podcast was produced by Alexandra Sahai Williams. I'm Lindim Tongana. Thanks for listening. <laughs>